The Aboriginal peoples of the Kulin Nations are the traditional custodians of the lands now named City of Greater Dandenong. We acknowledge, recognise and respect Elders past, present and emerging and their continuing connections to climate, culture and country. Welcome to the Open Book Podcast, books, events and conversations with the team at Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm Lee, and in this episode, Robin and Trent discuss the Australian fantasy fiction novel Borderlanders by Gillian Pollack. Mina gives us a wonderfully in-depth bookmatch recommendation for a patron after LGBTIQ plus stories. We'll have a programs update and a few reviews from library staff members Lauren and Robin. Hope you enjoy. Hi, this is Robin and I'm here with Trent. Hello, Trent. Hey, Robin. How's it going? Yeah, good. Thank you. And today we're going to discuss the book Borderlanders by Gillian Pollock, kind of a contemporary fantasy. We'll talk a bit about that later as well. It's published by Odyssey Books in 2020. Gillian is an Australian writer, an editor, historian and teacher who's published nine novels. She has a doctorate in English and another in history and also a master's in medieval studies. Her 2019 novel, The Year of the Fruitcake, won the 2020 Dittmar Award for Best Novel and was shortlisted for the Science Fiction Novel in the Aurelius Awards. And she's also the winner of the 2020 Bertram Chandler Award for Outstanding Achievement in Australian Fiction. So there you go. That's Gillian Pollock. Um, Trent, do you want to give us a little bit of an overview of the story? Uh, Yes. So it's uh, set in Australia, which is something that I haven't encountered much in fantasy. Um, That was a new, new bit for me, which I liked living in Australia, and also set in Victoria. Um, It's about three women who sort of go through various personal, I guess, adventures is is the best term for it, given that it is a fantasy, even though that they're fairly typical adventures, um, trials and tribulations that we all go through in life, uh, studying, working, having children, having family, the problems and politics that come with all of that, but also the joys that we can experience. Um, we've got Melissa, who is um, unfortunately a sufferer of chronic pain. We're never given a specific diagnosis for her, uh, but she does very quickly experience some magical properties, whether it's related to the pain or it's just part of who she is. It's something that was never entirely answered, I guess, but maybe some people mm-hmm. could interpret that differently. Mm-hmm. Um, Bettina, who experiences dreams that come true. Um, so, but she's quite reluctant to admit that they are real, hoping that she doesn't really have this power. I guess with great power comes great responsibility. And Zelda, who is a lecturer or tutor at a university, uh, studying Celtic mythology and, and its history, um, but refuses to sort of acknowledge the magic that exists, despite the fact that she is studying something which is so typically associated with, um, 
fantasy and magic mm. and, and the like. It's, it's, it's a very typical sort of aspect of Western uh, mythology where we have wizards and swords and sorcerers. Um, it generally stems from Celtic mythology, so I find it very fascinating that somebody who's studying that doesn't see the magic that's right in front of her throughout the book. Mm. Yeah, so the three of them are old friends from school, um, and I think we get the picture that Bettina and Zelda have perhaps kept in touch a bit more often. A bit more often, Melissa not so much. Um, she's and she's perhaps always felt a little bit on the outer in in the friendship between the three of them. Um, but they're all very artistic and creative, and they've all applied for this sort of scholarship to attend a retreat at a country mansion. But as we find out, the retreat is not exactly what it seems and perhaps the women are not exactly what they seem either and 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 nor is their friendship um so as they go to this house and begin working on their creative projects um we discover that the house is a sort of a sentient being it's like another character in the story a living organism that contains doors and portals to other worlds and other parts of this world and there's also all kinds of other um, mischievous characters lurking around the hallways, um, some of whom have um, bad intentions. And there's also these very menacing lurking shadows that threaten to take over the house and, and destroy it. So the women, it seems like the women have been chosen to come to this retreat, not only because of their artistic abilities and artistic endeavours, but because of their particular gifts that they've got that may also help to to save the house yes and that's something i think um even bettina i think had a dream or she wrote the story with uh, what was it sadie kylie and, and another and Myla, another character earlier on yeah it replicates i should say foreshadows their um adventure to the house mm. Um, I also think it's very interesting the use of the shadow people. Um, is I think used in so many different stories the shadows because it's just pure darkness. It's the the complete absence of light. Mm. Always interesting when the shadow is is used as the as the villain in a sense, the unseen, the unknown. Mm. So I think that's that's a trope that's used out throughout a lot of fantasy. I guess for myself, um, I thought it was very interesting. It was a very different kind of fantasy than what I'm used to, mm. but I still consider it fantasy nevertheless um, for one type of story that it represents, which is the quest narrative. Mm. Uh, there's there's usually a few or defeating the monster to some degree as well. I'm not sure if you're familiar, Robin, the, the seven archetypes of stories that everything could be encapsulated by one or or a few of these types and mm. it's very much the the quest yeah um which is sort of given to the characters earlier on by their various um situations um melissa obviously needs to do something a little bit more than just feel useless within her pain she wants to get out and become independent but also express the magic that she finds in meaningful ways Bettina needs to sort of come to terms with the loss of her mother and receiving 
I think she directly receives this quest to go to the house mm. um, in sort of a roundabout way. But again, that's also very typical of a quest that it's always a bit cryptic. It's never quite a <laughs> message. Um, and then Zelda sort of goes along for professional reasons, but I guess gets caught up uh, within within the adventures of the others. Mm. Yeah, because Zelda's very sort of single-minded about her work, isn't she? She feels it's very important. She prioritises it over most other things and people in her life. You know, she spends long hours working and, and researching and she can also be very dismissive of other other people's work and other people's problems because she's kind of thinks that what she's doing is is the most important of all. Yes. Um uh, that's, a, that's a good point to bring up. Um that she's studying that her her um background academically, the character Zelda is uh studying Celtic mythology and history. Um which I think it's very interesting that she's blind to some of the magic that exists when Celtic mythology is considered to be sort of our foundation of Western fantasy. Uh, swords and wizards and the like um but it's some, it brings up something else that i remember studying from history is the which comes from very matriarchal societies historically the three phases three seasons so before we had autumn summer winter and spring uh we used to have the seasons represented more by spring you know spring winter and autumn tended to be the, the representation and that was also represented through the feminine in the the child um the middle-aged and then the the aging woman mm. um which i think how would you apply this to these three characters do you think that zelda would be the the old the older woman or the younger hmm. yeah i think she would be the older like I didn't really think about what age because because they all went to school together. They I assume they're kind of all of the same age. They're kind of middle aged, but she somehow seems older in her attitude. It's almost um, as if she's older in the real world, but she's the youngest one in the magical world. Mm, yeah. Whereas it's then Bettina's right in the middle either way, and Melissa obviously is is quite attuned to her. A sense of self in the magical world, but is completely. She says quite a lot. She's adrift. She's lost. Mm. She's, she's in transition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? Um, the juxtaposition of the three characters, and I particularly found interesting um, a, a Melissa's story because we often. Um, receive Melissa's story in the first person through her diaries that she's writing. So um, her story is somehow more immediate, I think, and we can, um, you know, really understand what she's going through. And um, one of her main things is that she, like you said, is dealing with this unnamed condition that causes her chronic pain. And she struggles every day with the pain. She takes medication, but she's always having to think, factor it into everything she does. Um, yeah. Not everyone takes her entirely seriously. No one believes her that even the mm. pain is sort of a magical entity in a way. Yeah. Like a curse where it's not a visible kind of malady. Like I think this is also talking, maybe the metaphor there is mental illness. Uh, where there's these things that are invisible and so people don't treat it the way that it should be, uh, whereas a physical um, deformity is usually treated with the sympathy or maybe even pity that 
it, it, whether it deserves it or not, people mm. will see it and then treat it differently. Whereas Melissa's pain not being visibly on the surface, I think it was really interesting. Even one um, scene when a neighbor offers to um, pick her up from the hospital after some treatment. Um, but then the neighbor forgets to inform her that he needs to make a few more stops, which means that she's not able to prepare appropriately with, uh, with the, with um, painkillers and, mm, and all yeah. so she's going to be out of the house for a little bit longer than expected. But and so even even these acts of kindness, she ultimately put our uh, journals as as you know people don't understand. Mm, yeah. Well, she doesn't necessarily let them know. Uh, if she did express her, her this this taste at the situation, they would think of her as rude. Mm. Yeah, so we do. We get a lot of insight into to how she feels. Um, you know, yeah, like you're saying, people um, may judge her or um, pity her. They sort of expect that because she's um, doesn't work or have ha- have children that she's got time to do things. And if she says that she she can't do things or she's um, going to find it difficult, then they sort of think that she's, um, you know, being lazy or malingering or trying to get out of something she (laughs) even the doctors i think when she goes to a few hospitals early on that they they treat her very dismissively as well just here's your injection he's painkiller go home you'll find without without really sort of exploring any further so there's almost a where we think of the magical as purely positive i think that it's almost like a condition is this very negative magical influence considering how she is sort of the most fantastical of the three characters mm. um, most sort of what's the word esoteric or um she's she's not quite you can't quite pin down what's going on with her character as a whole even though we very much sympathise with her situation. Yeah, so that sort of uh, concept of the individ- uh, invisible disability um it's kind of like believing in magic in a way you need to be open to it to and seek to understand it um you know rather than just ignoring it or discounting it you know like um you know if, if you had I guess even from our experience who were to have um somebody walk into the library and saying all oh, the goblins are after me you know we would immediately dismiss that as oh that's not a, you know, a real thing I guess but you know you don't understand it from their perspective they might be seeing these things or even worse, that they actually exist and none of us see them. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, that's the magic of the world that we don't quite admit to. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. part of the premise of the story. It's not whether or not magic exists; it that is that it does exist. It's just whether you choose to see it or not. Um, and I think Melissa's character is really interesting because um, I feel like her experience at the house um, shows that she can sort of have power and influence and that her experiences of getting through this pain that she deals with and being so aware of her emotions are actually really special and they kind of allow her to operate on this other level um, that opens her up to sort of whole new worlds really. Um, whole new abilities very very fascinating book very different and I guess the fact that it doesn't get into it it very slowly I guess that's probably 
whether it's a criticism or uh, positive or not, positive or negative, um, the difference here is that it took a long time to sort of get into that more um, fantastical element of the story mm. that, that was present in a sense. So I used something that was very real that I guess we can all relate to, which perhaps as a result might make this book more um, accessible to people who don't read fantasy. Mm. So other t- uh, types of stories, or used yeah. to be more dramatic stories, or um, more character study rather than the, because the fantasy tends to be more about the world building, whereas this seems to be more about the character building. Yeah. I don't know how how do you feel about it, Robin? Seeing as you probably don't like you haven't read much fantasy in the past. Yeah, I I haven't read that much fantasy. Normally, you know, the things I would have read are things like the you know Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. Um, Harry Potter, even Chronicles of Narnia, that kind of thing, where you are going into um, more of the fantasy world. That's a you know, it's it's totally built, and you be- can become immersed in that. Um, so yeah, this this was quite different. And at times, I was thinking, oh well, where where is the magic part? Or you know, you just get little glimpses now and then. But as the story progresses, and particularly as they go to the house, um, you can see, you know, more and more of these magical elements, the the portals and the doors and all these strange characters, um, more of that coming out. But, it, yeah, it was interesting because it made me, it made me think about things in a different way because, because it's not a total fantasy world because it's so grounded in really the real world and real people's experiences. Yeah, you get that sort of juxtaposition which makes you think think about things differently, you know, um, and what, yeah, like, for for example, what Melissa's pain means, what um, Bettina's dreams mean um, and how you can connect that to sort of your everyday experiences. How sometimes getting too involved in our, um, in our real lives uh, like Zelda, we uh, become oblivious to some of the magical things that exist alongside us, some of the beautiful, wonderful things that we sometimes forget. You know, the saying, stop and smell the roses. Yeah. Like Zelda forgot that the roses had any smell. At, mm. I guess, but yeah, considering yeah. your character. Yeah, exactly. So would you call this this book a contemporary fantasy? Would you say that's what it is? Magical probably. realism? Like I said, I think that the fact that it involves uh, very much that quest story, uh, that there is a questing storyline, that whether it's a personal quest for the girls or the ladies, um, uh, or the quest to save the house, uh, yeah, I guess that that's that's a very typical thing, and that it does involve some magical elements. That the portals, doors to other other worlds, is is also very uh, typical of fantasy. Uh, the magic itself, I guess, a bit lighter on that aspect, but still relevant. And perhaps more, what I appreciate about fantasy is the metaphors that are used, mm. which then be applied to our, our own lives. I guess um, what I wanted to say as well, to some degree, what makes it so interesting is also, in terms of how we live today, a very interesting relationship, say, with uh, um, haunted houses or escape rooms that, Maybe we are noticing some of the magic again, and a story like this, I think, can emphasize uh, what we've been going through. 
Mm. Or rarely is that there's always an, a, an interest, a uh, curiosity about what what's going on at the sort of folds of reality. Is there something there waiting to help us or eat us? <laughs> mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it is really interesting. It was it was quite a unique and different story. I wouldn't mind reading it again, actually, um, especially after having a chat with you. And you know, as I said, there's sort of lots of different ways of of thinking through it. So I, now that I've kind of got the overview of the story, I wouldn't mind going back, and I'd, I think I'd probably get more out of it. Um, you know, that yeah, that yeah. Yeah, there'd be things that I haven't picked up or because I've got some prior knowledge, you know, that I'll get more out of it. Um, so, yeah, it makes it a really a really interesting read. Good book if you have to read it twice, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Good book if you, if you um, think you could read it twice. Yeah, if you think you could go back to it. If I had one little criticism, it was sometimes a little bit repetitive in places, like some phrases were a bit overused. You felt like you were reading about the same thing again. A really interesting novel. Mm. Yeah, a really interesting read and definitely recommend that you check it out. It's available as a hard copy in the library. Yes. So thanks for the chat today. That was really great. That was really enlightening. And as I said, um, it's given me the impetus to go back and... um, read through the book again. Hi everyone, my name's Lee. I'm part of the programs team here at Greater Dandenong Libraries. We're so excited to announce that as of this week, most of our programs are returning to both Springvale and Dandenong Libraries. Every Thursday night, we'll be hosting our free Libraries After Dark programs from 7.30pm, where you can learn anything from crocheting to concertina books to making jewellery out of electrical wires. This August as well, we're welcoming back our STEAM Festival, where we celebrate science, technology, engineering, arts and maths at the library. You can book in now to start making zines, learn how to do basic car maintenance, and even give DJing a go with local artists, Big Bow. There's heaps for the kids too, with Children's Book Week in August, and a whole heap of think tanks to keep the young ones curious. Lastly, we assume if you're listening to this podcast, then you love books, so be sure to sign up for our online book club, The Dandy Readers. Each month, we'll have a virtual discussion about a new book, and it's a great way to meet new people. Head to our What's On page at greaterdandenong.vic.gov.au forward slash libraries to find out more and secure your place. And now, Mina's response to a book match request from a patron. Hi, my name's Mina, and I'm a librarian at Greater Dandenong Libraries. In this segment, I'll be talking about six books that I chose in response to a book match request. Bookmatch is a service for library members who fill out a form nominating favourite genres and books that they've liked or disliked, and a librarian recommends books that they think the patron will like. This bookmatch is for a patron who requested LGBTIQ stories. It's a pretty wide brief with a lot to choose from, and in the end I chose a range of titles, fiction, literary, two inventive memoirs and an illustrated novel. The first recommendation is Disoriental by Nagar Javadi. The blurb reads, 
Kimia fled Iran at the age of 10 in the company of her mother and sisters to join her father in France. Now 25 and facing the future she has built for herself as well as the prospect of a new generation, Kimia is inundated by her own memories and the stories of her ancestors, which come to her in unstoppable, uncontainable waves. In the waiting room of a Parisian fertility clinic, generations of flamboyant relatives return to her, including her formidable great-grandfather, with his harem of 52 wives, and her parents, Darius and Sarah, stalwart opponents of each regime that befalls them. I thought I would include here Javadi's answer to the following question posed by Emily Temple from LitHub. Disoriental brings together family history, disorientalization, and post-punk. How did that third thing come into the mix? How does music and subculture influence your writing? Javadi answered, Really, the thing that links these three elements is land, or country if you prefer. That land where the family has laid down roots for generations, where their history has become intertwined with history, with the events turning the country upside down. That land that they then leave for this other land, which is so different, this West they have dreamed about and fantasised about, which now they have to become familiar with and understand and fit into. And finally, music. The land you choose for yourself, which has its own history, its own codes and rules, its own inhabitants and encounters and charismatic figures, where it is possible to live, to love, to share and to dream of the future. My second pick is Freshwater by Kweke Amezi. Kweke is an Igbo and Tamil writer and artist. Freshwater is the author's debut novel. They have since written Pet, The Death of Vivek Oji and their latest Dear Senteran, a Black Spirit memoir, released this year. An extraordinary debut novel, Freshwater explores the surreal experience of having a fractured self. It centres around a young Nigerian woman, Ida, who develops separate selves within her as a result of being born with one foot on the other side. Unsettling, heart-wrenching, dark and powerful, Freshwater is a sharp evocation of a rare way of experiencing the world, one that illuminates how we all construct our identities. Ada begins her life in the south of Nigeria as a troubled baby and a source of deep concern to her family. Her parents, Saul and Saatchi, successfully prayed her into existence. But as she grows into a volatile and splintered child, it becomes clear that something went terribly awry. When Ada comes of age and moves to America for college, the group of selves within her grows in power and agency. A traumatic assault leads to a crystallisation of her alternate selves, Asugara and St Vincent. As Ada fades into the background of her own mind and these selves, now protective, now hedonistic, move into control, Ada's life spirals in a dark and dangerous direction. Narrated from the perspective of the various selves within Ada and based in the author's realities, Freshwater explores the metaphysics of identity and mental health, plunging the reader into the mystery of being and self. My third pick is Fairest, a memoir by Meredith Toulousen. This book was a finalist for the 2021 Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Nonfiction. A singular, beautifully written coming-of-age memoir of a Filipino boy with albinism whose story travels from an immigrant childhood to Harvard to a gender transition and illuminates the illusions of race, disability and gender. Fairest is a memoir about a precocious boy with albinism, a son-child from a rural Philippine village who would grow up to become a woman in America. Coping with the strain of parental neglect and the elusive promise of US citizenship, Toulousen found childhood comfort from her devoted grandmother, a grounding force as she was treated by others with special preference or public curiosity. 
As an immigrant to the United States, Toulousan came to be perceived as white. An academic scholarship to Harvard provided access to elite circles of privilege, but required Toulousan to navigate through the complex spheres of race, class, sexuality, and her place within the gay community. She emerged as an artist and an activist questioning the boundaries of gender. Toulousan realised she did not want to be confined to a prescribed role as a man, and transitioned to become a woman, despite the risk of losing a man she deeply loved. Throughout her journey, Toulousan shares poignant and powerful episodes of desirability and love that will remind readers of works such as Call Me By Your Name and Giovanni's Room. Her evocative reflections will shift our own perceptions of love, identity, gender and the fairness of life. Meredith Toulousan is also a contributing editor for LGBTQ online magazine, Them. My fourth recommendation is She of the Mountains by Vivek Shreya. This book was a Lambda Literary Award finalist in 2015. Shreya has written many other books, including other finalists, God Loves Hair, and the poetry collection Even This Page is White. Vivek Shreya is a multimedia artist working in the mediums of music, performance, literature and film. This is from the blurb. In the beginning, there is no he, there is no she. Two cells make up one cell. This is the mathematics behind creation. One plus one makes one. Life begets life. We are the period to a sentence, the effect to a cause, always belonging to someone. We are never our own. This is why we are so lonely. She of the Mountains is a beautifully rendered, illustrated novel. Shreya weaves a passionate contemporary love story between a man and his body, with a reimagining of Hindu mythology. Both narratives explore the complexities of embodiment and the damaging effects that policing gender and sexuality can have on the human heart. My fifth recommendation is A People's History of Heaven by Matangi Subramanian, published in 2019. This book was a finalist and long-listed for numerous awards, including the Penn and Lambda Literary Prizes. This is from the blurb. Welcome to Heaven, a 30-year-old slum hidden between brand new high-rise apartment buildings and technology incubators in contemporary Bangalore, one of India's fastest growing cities. In Heaven, you will come to know a community of people living hand-to-mouth and constantly struggling against the city government who wants to bulldoze their homes and build yet more glass high-rises. These families, men and women, young and old, gladly support one another, sharing whatever they can. A people's history of Heaven centres on five best friends, girls who go to school together, a diverse group who love and accept one another unconditionally, pulling one another through crises and providing emotional, physical and financial support. Together they wage war on the bulldozers that would bury their homes and ultimately on the city that does not care what happens to them. This is a story about geography, history and strength, about love and friendship, about fighting for the people and places we love, even if no one else knows they exist. Elegant, poetic and bursting with colour, Matangi Subramanian's novel is a moving and celebratory story of girls on the cusp of adulthood who find joy in the basic act of living. My final recommendation is In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. Machado has also written the short story collection Her Body and Other Parties and a graphic novel series The Lolo Woods. She also happens to be one of my favourite authors. This is from the Grey Wolf Press blurb. Carmen Maria Machado's In the Dream House is a searing account of a harrowing relationship with the charismatic but volatile woman. Each chapter in this wildly inventive memoir is driven by its own narrative trope. The Haunted House, Erotica, The Coming of Age Story, through which Machado holds her story up to the light, examining it from different angles. She considers her religious adolescence, 
unpacks the stereotype of lesbian relationships as safe and utopian, and widens the view with essayistic explorations of the history and reality of abuse in queer relationships. Machado's dire narrative is leavened with her characteristic wit, playfulness and openness to inquiry. She casts a critical eye over legal proceedings, fairy tales, Star Trek and Disney villains, as well as iconic works of film and fiction. The result is a wrenching, riveting book that explodes our ideas about what a memoir can do and be. And to recap, the list was Disoriental by Nagar Javadi, Freshwater by Kweke Amezi, Fairest, a memoir by Meredith Toulousan, She of the Mountains by Vivek Shraya, A People's History of Heaven by Matangi Subramanian, In the Dream House by Carmen Maria Machado. I hope you found something among those recommendations that interests you. If you'd like your own curated recommendation list, find the bookmatch link in the show notes or on the library website. We'd be very happy to hear from you. Finally, we have two title reviews from library staff members, Lauren and Robin. Hi, my name is Lauren and I'm going to be reviewing Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Girl, Woman, Other is set up as short stories based on 12 characters that are British, Black and mostly women. Each of the characters' lives overlap in some way, such as Arma, the feminist playwright, and her daughter Yaz, the university student. Morgan attends the opening night of Arma's play to review it. She lives with her great-grandmother, Hattie, who has been keeping a secret for more than 70 years. Sometimes the connection between the characters is obvious, other times you have to wait and see where the characters' lives end up. These stories drift back and forth in time, visit places such as Barbados and Northern England before we return to London where the novel began. This book masterfully showcases not only what these women experience over their lifetime, but what they want from their lives. Some of them are typical of their generation, whereas others are rebels or outcasts. Because of the separate stories, it's kind of hard to say exactly what this book is about, but what I experienced was how the feeling of friendship and love was so fundamental to all of these characters' lives. Identity and culture are also strong themes presented through various experiences. This book was written almost like poetry. There are no full stops or capital letters at the beginning of sentences, and it can be difficult at first. But I found that once I found my rhythm, I experienced the prose like a poem. Each line just seemed to flow into the next. For me, it was really easy to get lost in the book, reading through a whole character's journey without noticing the time passing. The stories of 12 characters is a lot for one book, and at times I wanted to continue on one character's story rather than being introduced to another one, and I was wanting to know more. But there's something so satisfying about the through line of these characters. Um, It made me contemplate my own everyday interactions. I was reminded of the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game. I really enjoyed this book. Uh, It touched on some heavy and important themes, but the writing made it a gratifying read. I would recommend this book if you enjoy character-driven stories and texts that can challenge you a little. Girl, Woman, Other is available in Branch and also through Overdrive and Borrowbox, which are both available on our website. Hi, this is Robin, and the book I'm reviewing today is The Mothers by Australian author Genevieve Gannon, published in 2020. It's about two couples trying to have a baby through IVF and ask the question, what if the baby you gave birth to belonged to someone else? Grace and Dan are a loving couple in their 40s, 
who've been trying for years to have a baby through IVF. We see in particular Grace's longing and desperation to start a family, but so far six attempts have been heartbreakingly unsuccessful. With only one more embryo available, Grace and Dan decide to make a last attempt and have the embryo implanted. We also meet Priya and Nick, a younger couple also hoping to start a family and embarking on an IVF journey as they make a life in the house they are renovating together. But Priya and Nick's relationship is rocky after Nick is found to be unfaithful. The lack of trust and Nick's deceitful behaviour leads to Priya and Nick's breakup. However, Priya still longs for a baby of her own, so she decides to go ahead with the planned IVF treatment, opting to use a sperm donor. As a result, one of the women is overjoyed as she becomes pregnant. The other is devastated at a failed attempt. But when baby Sam is born, it's obvious that something is not quite right. We learn that there's been a mix-up at the clinic, and one woman has given birth to a baby that biologically belongs to the other woman. The book explores themes of marriage, infidelity, family and cultural identity and ethics, but mostly it's a book about motherhood, what it means to be a mother, who gets to call themselves a mother, and everything that's tied up with that most evocative of words. We enjoyed reading this one in our online book club, The Dandy Readers, as it brings in lots of moral dilemmas and questions about the decisions that the characters make, lots of topics for discussion. It's an easy read, told in a contemporary style, and you'll enjoy it if you like contemporary stories that are both heartbreaking and heartwarming. It'll keep you intrigued and particularly invested in the outcomes for the main characters, Grace and Priya. You can borrow The Mothers as an ebook through Overdrive and the Libby app as part of our always available collection. Thanks for listening. You can check out the show notes for more information on all the items we mentioned in the podcast, and you can place holds on them via the Libraries Victoria app or at our website, greaterdanninong.vic.gov.au.